Chapter Thirty Four of the Great White Queen by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Thirty Four, Leola's Discovery. With a sudden bound, I left Leola's side and sprang upon the leader of our enemies, clutching him fiercely by the throat and shouting for assistance. No one was, however, near, and for a few moments we struggled desperately. He was unarmed, and I, having unfortunately dropped my sword in the encounter, our conflict resolved itself into a fierce wrestle for the possession of the weapon which must give victory to the one into whose hands it fell. Once Samory, wiry and muscular like all Arabs, notwithstanding his age, stooped swiftly in an endeavor to snatch up the blade, but seeing his intention my fingers tightened their grip upon his throat and he was compelled to spring up again without obtaining possession of the weapon. For several minutes our struggle was desperate, for he had managed to pinion my arms, and I knew that ere long I must be powerless, his strength being far superior to my own. Leola screamed for help, but no one seemed within call, when suddenly the thought seemed to suggest itself to her to snatch up my weapon and hold it. I turned to take it from her, but by this action my grip upon my Arab foe became released, and with a desperate spring he forced himself from my grasp, bounding away, leaving a portion of his white jebba in my hand. But, determined that he should not escape, I dashed after him headlong across the chamber and out by the opposite door. In the court beyond a knot of our soldiers were standing discussing the events of the day, and I shouted to them, but the sight of me chasing a single fugitive slave did not appeal to them, and they disregarded my order to arrest his progress. Nevertheless I kept on, feeling assured that sooner or later I must run him to earth, but never thinking of the intricacies with which all such places abound, intricacies which must be well known to the Mohammedan ruler. Suddenly, after endeavoring to elude me by ingenious devices innumerable, and always finding himself frustrated, he entered the chamber leading from the court of the eunuchs, and had gained on me sufficiently to disappear ere I reached the entrance. I rushed through after him, believing that he had crossed the deserted court beyond, but was surprised to find that I had utterly lost him. I halted to listen, but could hear no footsteps, and after a careful examination of all the outlets, presently returned in chagrin to the chamber into which he had suddenly dashed before escaping. Standing in its center, I looked wonderingly around. Then, for the first time, I discovered that our soldiers, obeying their instructions, had been pouring inflammable liquids everywhere throughout the casbah, and a great burst of blood-red flame in the outer court told me that the place had been ignited. At that moment Leola, with white scared face, believing that she had lost me, entered the chamber but I recognized our imminent peril, surrounded as we were by a belt of fire. "'Fly!' I cried frantically. "'Fly, quick, back across yonder court to save thy life. In a few moments I will join thee. I must examine this chamber ere I depart.' "'I will not go without thee,' she answered with calm decision. "'Why riskest thou thy life?' I cried in excitement. "'Fly, or in a moment it may be too late. We may both be overwhelmed or suffocated.' But she stirred not. She stood by me in silence, gazing at fear at the red roaring flames that, raging outside, now cut off our retreat by either door. The cause of my hesitation to rush away at first sight of the flames 
was the suspicion that somewhere in that chamber was a secret exit. The sudden manner in which the Arab chieftain had eluded me could only have been accomplished by such means. The chamber, well furnished and supported by three great twisted columns of milk-white marble, had its floor covered with costly rugs and its walls hung with dark red hangings bearing strange devices and inscriptions in long, thin Arabic characters. Few rooms in the Kasbah were decorated in this manner, and it had instantly occurred to me that, concealed somewhere, was one of those secret ways which, whether in the Oriental Palace or the medieval European castle, are so suggestive of treachery and intrigue. Although one horseshoe arch of the place led into the court of the eunuchs, the other, I noticed, was in direct communication with Samory's private apartments. With consummate skill he had led me here by such a circuitous route that I had not at first noticed that it joined a kind of anteroom to his pavilion. But the roaring flames at every moment leaped nearer, crackling furiously, and fanning us with their scorching breath, allowed me no time for further reflection. Escape was now entirely cut off. Only by discovering the secret exit could we save ourselves. In breathless haste I rushed around the walls, tapping them with my sword. But such action proved useless, as I could hear nothing above the roaring and crackling on either side. With my hands I tried to discover where the door was concealed, rushing from side to side in frantic despair. But the exit, wherever it existed, was too cunningly hidden. So dense had the smoke become that we could not see across the chamber. Tongues of fire had ignited the heavy silken hangings, and the whole interior was alight from end to end. "'We are lost, lost!' shrieked Leola in despair. "'We have fallen victims to our own terrible vengeance upon our enemies.' Within myself I was compelled to admit this, for it seemed as though Samory had led us into a veritable death-trap that the soldiers of Mo had themselves prepared. Suddenly, as a last chance, I remembered I had not examined the three great marble columns, each of such circumference that a man could not embrace them in his arms. I dashed forward, and in the blinding smoke that caused my eyes to water and held my chest contracted, I tried to investigate whether they were what they appeared to be, solid and substantial supports. The first was undoubtedly fashioned out of a single block of stone, the lower portion polished by the thousands of people who during many centuries had brushed past it. The second was exactly similar, and the third also. But the latter seemed more chipped and worn than the others, and just as I was about to abandon all hope I made a sudden discovery that thrilled me with joy. As I grasped it a portion of it fell back, disclosing that the column was hollow. The hole was just sufficient to admit the passage of one's body and without an instant's hesitation I drew Leola forward and urged her to get inside. The flames were now lapping about us, and another moment's delay would mean certain death. Therefore she dashed in, and as she did so sank quickly out of sight, while the portion of the marble column closed again with a snap. The rapidity with which she disappeared astounded me, the more so when, after the lapse of about a minute, the platform whereon she had stepped rose again, and with a click returned to its place. Only then was I enabled to reopen the cavity. Apparently it worked automatically, and being balanced in some way, as soon as Leola had stepped off it, had risen again. Instantly I stepped upon it, 
and with hands close to my sides sank so swiftly into the darkness that the wind whistled through my garments and roared in my ears. The descent was, I judged, about two hundred feet, but in the pitch darkness I could not discern the character of the shaft. Of a sudden with a jerk it stopped, and finding myself in a strange dimly lit chamber bricked like a vault with Leola standing awaiting me, I stepped off, and as I did so the platform shot up again into its place. "'We have at all events escaped being burned alive,' my fair companion exclaimed when she recovered breath, "'but this place is weird and dismal enough.' "'True,' I answered. "'There must, however, be some exit, or Samory would not have entered it. We must explore and discover it.' Glancing around the mysterious vault I saw burning in a niche, with a supply of oil sufficient to last several weeks, a single lamp that had apparently always been kept alight. Taking it up I led the way through the long narrow chamber. The walls, blackened by damp, were covered with great grey fungi, while lizards and other reptiles scuttled from our path into the darkness. At the further end the vault narrowed into a passage so low that we were compelled to stoop when entering it. In this burrow, the ramifications of which were extraordinary, Leola's filmy garments came to sad grief, for catching upon the projecting portions of the rock they were rent from time to time, while the loss of one of her little green slippers necessitated some delay in recovering it. Yet groping along the narrow uneven way in search of some exit, we at length came into a larger chamber, bricked like the others, and as we entered it were startled by a sudden unearthly roar. We both drew back, and Leola in fear clutched my arm. "'Listen!' she gasped. "'What was that?' Again the noise was repeated, causing the low-roofed chamber to echo, and as I peered forward into the darkness my gaze was transfixed by a pair of gleaming, fiery eyes straight before us. Similar noises I had heard in the forest on many occasions, and the startling truth at once flashed across my mind. Confronting us was a lion. I stood in hesitation, not knowing how to act, while Leola clung to me, herself detecting the gleaming eyes and being fully aware of our peril. Yet scarcely a moment passed ere there was a loud rushing sound in the darkness, and the animal, with a low growl, flew through the air in our direction. We had no time to elude him, but fortunately he seemed to have misjudged his distance, for he alighted about half a dozen paces short of us. So close was his head that the two gleaming orbs seemed to be riveted to us. We felt his breath, and, unable to draw back, we feared that each second must be our last. Next moment I heard a clanking of chains, a sound that gave me instant courage. Hark! I cried joyously. At present we are safe, for the brute is chained. Such we ascertained a few minutes later was actually the case, and as I stood there, lamp in hand, my foot struck something. Glancing down I saw it was a human thigh-bone. The animal had already tasted the blood of man, and, straining at his chain, was furious to spring upon us. I then became puzzled to know the reason why this fierce king of the forest should be kept in captivity at this depth if not to guard some entrance or exit. For a few moments I reflected, and at length arrived at the conclusion that during our progress we had slowly ascended towards the earth's surface, and that through the lion's den was the exit of that subterranean way. 
again we had neither seen nor heard sign of the fugitive chieftain by some means or other he must have succeeded in passing the ferocious brute and if he had accomplished it we surely could also with my words half drowned by the continuous roar of the fiery-eyed guardian of the secret burrow i explained briefly to liola the result of my reflections and then set about to ascertain the length of the chain holding the animal after several experiments allowing it to spring forward at me half a dozen times and narrowly escaping its ponderous paws more than once i ascertained that the chain was just short enough to allow a person to cross the chamber flattened against the opposite wall holding the lamp still in my hand and urging liola to brace her nerves and watch me closely i essayed the attempt creeping cautiously with my back against the roughly hewn sign of the underground lair and drawing my garments about me to prevent them being hooked by the cruel claws that followed me within a yard during the whole distance before my eyes the big shaggy head wagged continuously the great jaws with their terrible teeth opened emitting terrific roars of rage and closed again with a dull ominous click while the chain was strained until i feared it might be rent asunder through several minutes mine was a most horrible experience for i knew not whether the wall was even if not i must have fallen beneath the ferocious claws however i managed to successfully cross the brute's den and shouting to liola that the passage was perfectly safe providing she kept her garments closely about her and did not remove her back from the wall held up the light to her with reassuring words she commenced to follow my example and when the brute saw me in safety and noticed her approach he left me and sprang towards her but again he fell short almost strangled by the pressure upon the iron collar that held him with an awful roar his jaws snapping in rage and his paws constantly clutching at her he followed her closely just as he had followed me i feared that she might suddenly faint from the terrible strain upon her nerves but having witnessed my safe passage she preserved a calmness that was amazing twice as the animal after crouching leapt suddenly forward i feared the chain must give way but beyond a low frightened scream escaping her she preserved a cool demeanour and a few moments later i was gratified to find her standing panting but unharmed at my side there is an exit somewhere near i exclaimed a moment later while she rearranged her torn blood-stained garments and smoothed her hair with her hands come let us search on proceeding we soon found ourselves in a small passage drier than the former and descending rather steeply for some distance suddenly entered another spacious chamber hewn from the solid rock immediately we were inside some peculiarity of its walls attracted my gaze and i noticed in addition that we were in a cul-de-sac there was after all no exit the rocky walls however riveted the attention of both of us for let into them at frequent intervals were large square plates of iron these i examined carefully quickly arriving at the conclusion that they had been placed there to close up hewn cavities with this opinion liola assisting me in my investigations fully agreed each plate looking curiously like the door of an oven had apparently been fitted deeply into grooves sunk in the hard rock for although i tried one after the other seeking to remove them they would not budge by tapping upon them i ascertained that they were of great thickness and i judged that each must weigh several hundredweight 
They were not doors, for they had no hinges, yet beneath each one was a small semicircular hole in the iron into which I could just thrust my little finger. These were certainly not keyholes, but rather, it seemed, intended to admit air. In the course of our eager investigations we suddenly came upon a great pile of strongly bound loads, each wrapped in untanned cowhide and bound tightly with wire. From their battered appearance they had evidently rested upon the heads of carriers throughout a long march. "'I wonder what they contain,' Leola exclaimed, as we both looked down upon them. "'Let us see,' I said. Handing her the lamp I knelt upon one of the packages and after considerable trouble succeeded in unbinding the wire. Then, as I tore away its thick covering, we both uttered cries of amazement. The sight that met our gaze was bewildering. From the package there rolled out into the dust a profusion of magnificent glittering jewels. "'Ah, what diamonds!' Leola cried, with admiration for the iridescent stones that was particularly feminine. Then, picking up a splendid bracelet, and slipping it upon her wrist she added look isn't this marvellous the gems are larger than i have ever before seen beautiful i cried gleefully for by sheer good fortune we had discovered samory's hidden treasure and i reflected that our conquest would be rendered absolutely complete by its removal in triumph to mo after a cursory examination of the first pack we together undid them one after the other eagerly investigating their glistening contents and finding them to consist of a collection of the most wonderful and valuable precious stones it was possible to conceive there were a few heavy gold ornaments of antique pattern but in most of them jewels were set and those only of the most antique and magnificent character every known gem was there represented by specimens larger and of far purer water than my eyes had ever before beheld upon her knees leola with a cry of pleasure plunged both hands into the glittering heap of jewels drawing out one after another and holding them up to the glimmering light her bright eyes full of admiration the examination of nearly forty great packages took us a long time but so fascinating proved our task that we were heedless of how the hours sped in our determination to ascertain the true extent of our discovery while still upon her knees I had opened almost the last package and spread it before her when, with a sudden ejaculation, she withdrew a magnificent necklet of emeralds of huge size in quaint ancient settings, and with a gay laugh held it up to me for a moment, then clasped it about her own white neck. In the center hung a pendant consisting of a single emerald of enormous size and brilliant luster, and as I regarded it in the half-light its shape struck me as distinctly curious. I snatched up the lamp and, bending, examined the quaintly cut gem more minutely. Then, next instant, I cried excitedly, "'See! The shape of the pendant proves the origin of the necklet!' With a quick movement she tore it off and looked. Then, in amazement, she gasped, "'It is a representation of Zamara, our god!' We both scrutinized it closely. Yes, there was no mistake. The emerald had been fashioned into the form of a perfect crocodile, with open jaws, even the teeth being finely chiseled, a veritable marvel of the lapidary's art. While we were both looking at it puzzled, the oldest eyes suddenly became attracted by sight of something in the package I had just opened, and stooping swiftly, picked out of a mass of ornaments 
a magnificent diadem of some strange milk-colored, opaque crystals of a character entirely strange to me. The stones were beautifully cut and polished, and although they glittered, even in the sickly rays of our lamp, they had no transparency. Behold! she cried in a voice full of awe, her clear eyes wide open in astonishment. See what we have discovered! I gazed at it, failing at first to notice what I afterwards recognized. It is a crown, I said, laughing, a crown fit to grace thy brow. It is the great rock diadem of the Sanams of Mo, she answered. See, it is surmounted by the vampire, our national emblem. Then I saw that upon the crest of the diadem was a single great diamond wonderfully chiseled to represent a bat with outspread wings, the device upon the banners of the mystic realm. This, she continued, is without doubt the historic crown of the first Naya. Though it hath never been seen for ages by the eyes of man, it was always popularly supposed to be preserved in the secret treasure-house of the Sanoms among the royal jewels. Many are the beliefs and superstitions regarding it. The stones are said to be the first pieces of rock chipped during the foundation of our city in the clouds, which, as thou art aware, was her work a thousand years ago. Among the possessions of our royal house no relic hath been more venerated than this rock diadem of the Naya. How it came hither I know not. It is assuredly a mystery. No, I answered, endeavouring to subdue my excitement. We have now elucidated the mystery. The treasure-house of Mo hath been entered by thieves, and the most valuable of the royal treasures stolen. The matter hath been kept secret from the people, but by our discovery the identity of the robbers is established beyond doubt and we have thus recovered the wealth of a nation that was believed to be irretrievably lost. "'But is all of this Omar's lost treasure?' she inquired, astounded at my statement, glancing at the huge heap of gold and jewels nearly as high as ourselves, and of such great value as to be utterly beyond computation. Without doubt I answered, stooping and taking up several jeweled trinkets, girdles, and other ornaments, each bearing the sacred reptile, or the vampire crust of royalty. The recovery of these will at least repay thy nation for the expedition sent against their enemy. Retain possession of the rock diadem of Mo, for thou hast discovered it, and with thine own hand shalt thou deliver it into the possession of the ruler who loveth thee. Then, carefully wrapping the ancient badge of regal dignity in a piece of hide, and binding it securely with wire as the carrier's loads had been, I gave it back to her. In half an hour we had completed our examination of the wondrous accumulation of treasure, finding among it many quaint and extraordinary ornaments, some, no doubt, dating from the earlier days of the foundation of the mysterious isolated kingdom, and others manufactured during recent centuries. The gems were unique in size and character. Truly the thieves in the employ of the Arab chief had taken care to secure the most valuable portion of the royal jewels, and leave behind only those of least worth. With the secret of their concealment in our possession we were both full of eagerness to get back to the light of day and take steps for their removal. Yet I confess that the mystery of what was contained behind those strange plates of iron puzzled me. Leaving Leola to continue her inspection of our discovered treasures, I crossed to the wall and examined one of the plates again, trying with both hands to force it out, 
but being compelled to relinquish the attempt as hopeless. I was about to give up all idea of discovering how they might be opened, when Leola suddenly uttered an exclamation, and in turning to glance at her the flame of the lamp I held came into contact with the wall close to the plate that had defied my exertions to remove it. In an instant a bright flash ran around the chamber, lighting it up as bright as day. A puff of gray smoke was belched in our faces, and a report like thunder deafened us. An explosion had occurred, great pieces of rock and other debris being flung in all directions. Its terrific force hurled me heavily against the wall, while Leola was flung face downward upon the pile of jewels. Fortunately neither of us sustained any injury beyond a few bruises, but when I had assisted her to rise and gazed around, I was amazed to discover that a strange thing had occurred. The whole of the iron plates had been torn from their sockets, and a dark cavity behind each disclosed. The small sealed cells had been wrenched open simultaneously, as if by a miracle. But upon careful examination there was, I found, nothing miraculous in the manner in which they had thus been forced. The suffocating smoke that filled the place was of itself sufficient evidence of the agent to which the explosion had been due, and when I looked at the first cavity I saw that right around the chamber, from plate to plate, there had been laid a train of gunpowder communicating with a charge of powder placed behind each of the semicircular holes that had so puzzled me. Apparently it had been deemed by Samory wiser to seal the cells entirely rather than secure them by locks, and the train of powder had been placed in position in the event of any reverse of fortune requiring him to secure his treasure quickly before flight. A single spark, as I had accidentally proved, was sufficient to open every cell simultaneously. Fortunately our lamp was not blown out by the concussion, therefore as soon as the smoke cleared we together made another tour of inspection around the cavities, finding each of them crammed to overflowing with treasure of every description. Five of the cells, apparently freshly sealed, contained a portion of the stolen jewels of Mo, but all the remainder were evidently the spoils of war, much of it of enormous value. It amused me, too, to discover in one of the cavities, among a great collection of costly bejeweled ornaments, such European articles as a pair of common scissors in a pasteboard case, several penknives of the commonest quality, an India-rubber squeaking doll, a child's toy train in tin, and a mechanical mouse. All were, no doubt, considered as treasures by the Arab potentate yet I reflected that nearly every article in the whole of that miscellaneous collection had been acquired by the most ruthless and merciless bloodshed. When at last we became convinced of the necessity for finding some exit, we left the chamber by the way we had entered. The discovery of the wonderful treasure of the Sonomes made it plain to me that there must be an exit somewhere, for the packs were far too ponderous to have been lowered from the casbah by the way we had entered. On reflection I saw that the lion was evidently kept there to guard the entrance to the store of treasure, therefore it was not surprising that there was no outlet in that direction. No, we should be compelled to repass the brute. This fact I explained to Leola, but it in no way disconcerted her, for she crept past the snapping jaws of the furious beast calmly, holding the treasured rock diadem close beside her. 
presently on making a diligent search we discovered a long dark tunnel running at right angles to the path we had traversed and following this ascended to where a faint but welcome glimmer of light showed soon we were in a small natural cavern and a few moments later struggled upward to the light of day amazed to find ourselves on the bank of a beautiful river at our feet the clear cool water ran by placid and peaceful but away across the grass plain about half a mile distance was the once powerful city of Kusan, enveloped in black smoke that ascended to the clear blue heavens mingled with great flames the fierce roar of which reached our ears where we stood the vengeance of mo had indeed overtaken her arab enemy and completely crushed him end of chapter thirty four recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com